The rest of us, if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse 8 and then kind of uh, diving right into a little bit of chapter 2 this morning. And as we turn there, I, I want to just state the obvious, and the obvious is that sometimes in our walk with Christ, sometimes something gets in the way. Not that Jesus ever leaves us. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. And not that God has somehow made himself distant, but there is something that sometimes stands in the way of our fellowship with Christ. And last week we really talked a lot about uh, fellowship that we have with God, and that's our foundation for, for life. I mean, we, uh, we experience joy and fellowship and all of that through knowing God and knowing God through Jesus Christ, his son. And so that fellowship is really uh, what we need. Uh, what we as humans are longing for is communion. It's fellowship. And a lot of times we pursue happiness in any number of different directions, but the Bible teaches us and God tells us through his word that the, 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 the longing of our heart, the, the deepest desire that we have for life is to have fellowship. And he centers that in fellowship with Jesus and fellowship with Jesus's family. So that was the whole goal of, uh, of John's letter that he stated in the first few verses there is that, first of all, that Jesus is the only divine human and Jesus... Uh, and, and excuse me, and John was an eyewitness. He saw Jesus's divinity. He saw Jesus's humanity. And John wanted to articulate things about Jesus so that we might have fellowship with him and that our joy, his joy, might be complete. And by extension, that our joy would be complete. So uh, that was his stated intention in verses three and four. And then in verse five, John gives a statement that I think is sort of introducing really how do we enter into fellowship with God? How do we enter into fellowship with Jesus and with Jesus's family? And the way, the means by which we do that is going to be spelled out a little bit later. But in verse five, John just simply makes this statement. He says, God is light. See, God is the one who's shedding light on the matter. He's the one who's making it possible for us to know him. We would not have any inkling of knowledge of God apart from the self-revelation of God, that God is light. And then, of course, later, um, you know, John is going to share with us that, that God is love. And, and we always love God's love. We want to get to God's love, but we have to realize that you can't get to God's love apart from coming into his light. That's the whole point of John writing, is so that we can see God clearly, and that we can experience the love of God. But the only way we can experience the love of God is to come into the light of God. And then, just sort of by a way of review, we, we did talk about verses 6 and 7, but this morning we're going to be looking at verse 8 and following but I want to kind of bring it all together. I'm going to read 6, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 2. And I'm going to make a couple of observations before we get into the, the, the heart of, of the matter. Um, so starting in 1 John 1, verse 6, which again, we did address last week, but I want to, to show you how it all connects here. Um, 
verses 6 through 10 is an alternating series of conditional statements. There's a, if you say this, then this. If you say that, then that. And, and it kind of goes back and forth from negative to positive. In fact, there's five conditional statements. If, this. Five conditional statements. And the, uh, the, 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 the one in verse 6, 8, and 10 are negatively stated. The ones in 7 and 9 are positively stated. And I want you to just see that as we go through because it says in verse 6, 1 John 1 verse 6, it says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So you see how it's stated negatively and then stated positively. And then he does it again, a very related uh, sentence in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But stated positively in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now once again, stated negatively in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then just to complete the thought, I want us to read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Last month, I got an eye infection, and I had to go see the eye doctor. And when I went to the eye doctor, the eye doctor gave me a prescription. And then just this past week, I was able to go back. Of course, it was cleared up and everything was fine. Uh, but this week, this past week, I went back to the eye doctor for a one-month follow-up. And I was sitting at, in, in the chair uh, in front of the eye doctor, and he is telling me, um, he's kind of going through checking, diagno diagnosing, making sure the eye infection is cleared up and, and looking at everything. And so this eye doctor is looking in my eyes and he, uh, first of all, they put those drops in and, uh, and that dilates your eyes. Have you ever been in a really dark place? That's when your eyes open up to get as much light as possible. And then all of a sudden you go into a bright place. That's when your eyes, you know, the pupil of your eyes shrinks. Um, our eyes are designed for that so that we can, in dark places, see more light, and in light places, be able to filter that a little more carefully. And it, it hurts when you come into the light, right? Uh, well, what happened at the eye doctor this week was I'm sitting there, and of course, he uh, is knowledgeable, he's educated, he knows what he's talking about, and he uh, got his light and began to shine it in my eye. And he says to me, all right, look up, and I look up, look down, I look down, I follow exactly what he tells me to do. He's the doctor, and he's checking to make sure there are no signs of infection, there are no signs of disease, or no signs of, of problems in my eye. And he's looking at it, but then at one point he said, all right, look at me. And I'm telling you, it was so hard to look at him because the light was between us. And, and, and so he's, he's telling me to do that, and I don't know if this 
if your eyes are sensitive like mine are, but I'm looking at him and I'm going, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I can't look directly at him because the light. And so he's like, no, no, you've got to, you've got to look at me. And so, you know, my, my pupils are completely dilated. There's hardly any of the, the color part, you know, it's just almost all black. I'm just, I'm looking. And so he's shining that light directly in and he's, he's wanting me to look at him. And it was so hard. It was so painful. And yet I did that in order to ensure that there was no infection. Now, the reason why I share that illustration and that story is because verses 6 and 7, these conditional phrases, verses 6 and 7 are related for, to verses 8 through 9 and, and the rest of the chapter. This was John's purpose. He's saying to us that if... Um, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, in other words, we're not willing to come into the light. We don't want to look into the light. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But verse 7, again, this is kind of review. Uh, verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so it's in this, um, it's in the light that we can discover our sinfulness. It's in the light that we can begin to see the infection. It's in the light that we can begin to get a prescription for what we can do to get rid of that infection. And it's not something that I can prescribe for myself, is it? It's something that the eye doctor, in the case of the eye doctor, had to give me. See, I came into the light at the eye doctor, and then he gave me a prescription. What qualifies the eye doctor to do that? Well, it's his education. It's his training. It's his experience. Uh, he's knowledgeable about it. And it's because he's the one who has the instruments that are needed to look into my eye. He knows more about my eye than anyone else. And so if I'm going to heal, and if I'm going to be cured, then I've got to go to him. I can't do it myself. And so I go to him. He shines his light in my eye. He sees what needs to be done. He writes me a prescription, and it's taken care of. If we don't walk in the light, if we're not walking in the light of God's presence, if we're not approaching him, if we're not desiring to come into the light, then we can't have fellowship with him and we can't be cured of, of what ails us. And we can't get the prescription for how to treat the disease. And so um, I, I thought about getting a little technical with you on, on verses 6 through 10 about this back and forth. It, it actually is, is, is pretty interesting. Um, 6, 8, and 10 are very related, uh, but I'll, I'll kind of just summarize that very quickly. Because the first thing I want us to see is that even as Christians, we, we say we're walking in the light. But we need to be careful that we continue to walk in the light. Because there's something that can come between us and God. And that doesn't mean that we might lose our salvation. If you are truly saved, and only God knows, but, but if you are truly saved, then you can't lose your salvation. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation, and you can't do anything to lose your salvation. And so, uh, but 
as we're walking with God, there are times when we stray, when we fall to the side, where we sin, and we, um, and we are not uh, bearing witness to who God really is. And so we, we need to be careful that we are uh, walking in the light because the first point I want to make is that fellowship is broken by sin. Fellowship is broken by sin. And so I do want to take a quick look at verses 6, 8, and 10. And the best way to do this, I, we don't need to necessarily put it on the screen because we'll just be flipping back and forth. The best way to do this is just open your Bible. And if, if you don't have one, uh, open the Pew Bible in front of you to 1 John because I want us to, to, to just, I want to summarize verses 6, 8, and 10 very quickly and, and pick the pieces apart because John is doing something intentional by. Uh, by structuring it this way. In verses 6, 8, and 10, there's kind of like an if statement and then a, 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 you know, what, what is resulting out of that. So if this happens, then the result is this happens. So I want you to see the if statements of 6, 8, and 10. He says in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And then look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. All right? So you can see that if, if, you're, if you're saying you have fellowship, you say you're walking in the light, but you're really not, um, then verse 8, you're, you're, you're also saying we have no sin, and, and verse 10, we say we have not sinned. It, it's kind of a slippery slope that it, if you don't really have fellowship, then you don't really understand sin. You don't understand how sin can, can still permeate your life. Uh, it's being treated, it's being cured, and, and the power of sin has lost its effect in the life of a believer. But sometimes still, sin rears its ugly head in our lives. Maybe this week, maybe today, sin has lifted its ugly head in your life and you realize that that sin separates you from God because fellowship is broken by sin. And look at what happens in verses 6, 8, and 10 if we walk in darkness, if we deceive ourselves, and if we, if we say we have not sinned or that we have no sin. Look at what happens in verse 6. It says, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. Now look at verse 8. The truth is not in us. Now look at verse 10. His word is not in us. See, we are, uh, going back to verse 6, we are walking in darkness, we are deceiving ourselves, and we are making God a liar. Look, do, do you see those three phrases that are kind of in the middle of verses 6, 8, and 10? We are deceiving, our, we are walking in darkness, we are deceiving ourselves, but more importantly, we are making him a liar because we're saying that, that there is no sin in my life, or that the sin in my life is not serious, or that sin in my life is not something that really needs to be addressed. See, Jesus already nailed my sin to the cross, so what do I have to give you know, confession for? What do I need to ask forgiveness for? Jesus has already covered it on the cross. Well, that's true. You're saved. Praise God. But you continue to ask forgiveness. You continue to confess your sin if you are truly saved because you realize that sin is still in your life, and you want to root it out. 
Sin at any point can come back into our lives if we are not careful. There's a war that we talked about in the, the series in Galatians. There's a war between our flesh and, and the spirit. And so we need to be careful. So once again, going back through 6, 8, and 10, if we say we have fellowship with him, or if we say we have no sin, or if we say we have not sinned, then what happens? The reality is that you're still walking in darkness. You are deceiving yourselves. You are making God a liar. And if we want to take it one step further, we're going to see that we are not practicing the truth. The truth in verse 8 is not in us. Verse 10, his word is not in us. You see how those are related? And the reason why those are related, John was using a, a, a kind of a, um, that, that first century context. They used a lot of parallelism in constructing things. This is a very poetic, a very beautiful way in which John is constructing this. And the reason why it's done that way in Hebrew parallelism, of course this was written in Greek, but, the, but John was a Jew, so he would have been aware of all this, is to highlight what's in the middle. And so verses 7 and 9 are kind of like sandwiched in between. You could almost look at 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 as almost like a Big Mac, right? You, you have that middle layer, and so you've got the bun on top, the bun on the bottom, and the bun in the middle, but you've got a slice of meat and a slice of meat. I'm not saying... You know, uh, some of you are getting hungry. I, I'm not recommending Big Macs, but, but I'm just saying you see 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 as, as that kind of a structure. And 7 and 9, that's the meat. That's the substance. So let me, let me um, before I go there, I, I want to I continue on the buns, if you will, 6, 8, and 10, to say that this fellowship is broken by our sin. We have to realize that if we say we have no sin or that we don't sin— then what we're saying is that God is a liar, that you as a Christian, you actually can continue in sin, not that you should, but, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. It says in Psalm 14.3 that all have turned away, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And, but, the, but the beauty of salvation is that Jesus has offered his, uh, his, himself and laid down his life so that we could become in Christ, that we could be, be forgiven of our sins. Um, but it's important that we continue to ask forgiveness. Now, uh, not too many of you probably are hockey players uh, or hockey fans, but uh, and I didn't know this. Uh, I'm not too much of a hockey aficionado myself. But you know what the penalty box is, right? So if you're playing hockey and you violate the rules of the game, you're not necessarily just kicked off the team, right? Like, uh, you violate the rules of the game in some way. That doesn't mean you're off the team. What happens, though, is that if the, if the violation of the rule of the game, certain violations are uh, might warrant a trip to the penalty box, right? Have you ever seen a hockey game where they're sliding all over the, the ice and then somebody has to be sent to the penalty box? Well, they're put in the penalty, and uh, by the way, that penalty box is affectionately known by a lot of you know hockey players as the sin bin or the bad box, 
Okay, so that's a couple of other names that are given to this penalty box where they have to sit out while the rest of their team is trying to continue on. And, and here's the reality for us as Christians is that so many of us, because we're, we're, not, we're, we're not caring about our sin, we're not uh, concerned about our sin, we're not grieving over our own sin, that we're spending all of our faith and all of our Christian life in the penalty box. Not, not that we're uh, being punished per se, but we're the ones separating ourselves from God. And we're, we're spending time in the sin bin, you know, we're sending, spending time in the bad box, uh, not because God is directly punishing us, but because that sin is separating us from the fellowship that we could be having with God. And, the, and, and, the, um, and the, to use the hockey team metaphor, to, to be able to spend that time out on the ice being involved in the game. Have you ever felt sidelined in your Christianity because you knew that there was something in your life that you shouldn't be doing or there was something in your life you should be doing and that sin was keeping you distracted? It's keeping you from being able to serve. It's keeping you from living a life of joy and fellowship, of, of, of that huddle with the team. There's something that's coming in between you. And, and what John is getting at here is he wants us to experience fellowship. That's the whole point of chapter 1, is that we would experience fellowship with God and with God's family. And that we do that through Jesus. And when we do that, we experience maximum joy. The maximum amount of joy that you and I can ever experience in this life is when we have peace with God. It's only through Him that we can fulfill all of our longings, that God has given us these longings. And he's telling us it's by playing on the team. It's by getting out there and being involved. And, and yet sin separates us. Sin continues to sideline us. Um, so fellowship is broken by sin. But the good news is, whether you are lost and in need of entering into fellowship for the first time and being saved, or if you are a Christian who is stumbling in sin, you're just given over to a particular temptation, or you're, you're struggling with a thought, or you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, or you're not participating in something you should be participating, whether or not it's for your salvation or whether it's for your sanctification as a believer— there's some good news. That fellowship is restored through confession and fellowship is established in Christ. Fellowship is restored. We can, we can actually have our fellowship restored with God. We can, we can have that intimacy with God that we long for through his forgiveness. And Jesus <laughs> is continually offering his forgiveness to us. We don't need to have our dark thoughts or our deepest temptations or our, our, our straying into sin. We don't have to give over to those things. We can walk in the light and we can walk in Christ. And so fellowship is restored through confession. Let's look back at verses 7 and 9. Remember, 7 and 9 were kind of like the meat of the Big Mac. We're looking at the substance. We're looking at the good news. 
So look at verse 7, and I want you to see, again, we're going to bounce back and forth between verses 7 and 9, where it says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. Let's just stop there. We talked about this last week, and that's what uh, part of part of what we're, we're talking about this morning is that, that we need to continue walking in the light. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. And so if we're going to know and experience the love of God, we need to come into the light. And so if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we'll see the result of that in a moment. But look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, all right, so if we walk in the light and if we confess our sins, these are the two things that John is encouraging us as believers to continue doing. That we walk in the light. See, that's a continual process. Walking in the light. And verse 9, confess our sins. This is the antidote. This is the prescription. This is what, uh, you know, this is the meat. This is the heart of fellowship. Is that we're walking in light. We're confessing our sins. Now look what will result if we do that. If we walk in the light, verse 7, um, we have fellowship with one another. Now verses 7 and 9 actually give two statements of results. <laughs> Um, so the, the first statement here is that if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, one, we have fellowship with one another, two, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Skip down to verse nine. If we confess our sins, one, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, uh, two, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you see the, the relationship that we walk into the light, and what happens in the light? Well, what happened at the light in the doctor's office is that he discovered an infection. He used the light to see that there was something in my eye that needed to be removed. Not my eye, but something needed to be removed. Something that was not supposed to be there was there. Um, and before he could give me a prescription, I had to come and be aware of, uh, of my problem. And it's the same thing is true in our walk with the Lord, is that in order for us to understand what is it that's separating me from God. Now, again, this has to do with non-believers. Your sin is separating you from God. You have no fellowship with him. But even for us as believers, sin is breaking that fellowship with God. Not permanently, but we have a, you know, we have something in between us. And so fellowship, the second point here is that fellowship is restored through confession. It's restored through confession. You know, some people look at verse 9, and that's really where we're going to spend a, a minute or two here. Is if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've come into the light. And now, as we're walking in the light, John is saying you need to also be confessing your sins. And if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, some people think that verse 9 is, is primarily applicable to those who are not Christians. That this is the act of, uh, of repenting and confessing and believing. Uh, that, that we are turning from our sin initially and uh, turning to our Savior. 
Well, there is application here for verse 9, but verse 9 is in the context of fellowship. Verse 9 is actually in the context of uh, the audience here is believers. And so if you're not a believer, then verse 9 does apply to you. It, it, you should confess your sins. You should cry out to God for forgiveness. He'll offer that to you through Jesus Christ, his son. Praise the Lord. You can be saved this morning. Um, but, but the context of this is that we are, we are desiring fellowship. God knows that fellowship is what we need. And in order for us to continue in fellowship, we must confess our sins. You know, um, husbands, what if you never said, I'm sorry, to your wife? What if you never said the words, I'm sorry? In your relationship with your wife. I, I guess we could, I'm a husband, so I can say it this way, uh, but I guess we could turn it around the other way. Wives, what, what if you never apologized? What if you never said the words, I'm sorry, in your relationship? Your fellowship, if, if you ever have an argument, if you ever have a disagreement, if, if you ever have a, an issue, a, a problem, you know, if you ever go through those things and it never resolves, it never comes to a point of forgiveness. If it never comes to a point of repentance and acknowledgement of your part in the problem, then you're never going to have deep intimacy and deep fellowship with your wife or with your husband. If you never say, I'm sorry, in your marriage, your marriage is likely not going to last. Uh, and, and so this is true of, um, uh, of human relationships, is that we would, uh, of course we're going to say, I'm sorry. Of course we're going to own up to our problems. Of course we're going to acknowledge our uh, sin against our spouse or against this other person in a relationship. Our relationships flourish. Our relationships thrive on forgiveness. Of course, on a lot of other things too. But if there's no forgiveness, if there's no remorse, if there's no repentance, if there's no apologies in our Marriages and, and in our human interactions with one another, then there's not going to be fellowship. Let's take it to the level of the church. If, if, if there's a brother or a sister who offended you or you have offended them, and there's never any acknowledgement of your sin or, or acknowledgement uh, of where you went wrong, and you never say, I'm sorry, then you can't really have fellowship with one another. And so the point, the point number one was that fellowship breaks our, you know, is broken by our sin. But point number two is that fellowship is restored through confession. Um, and so there's this link between verses seven and nine. And when we look at verse nine, we see that if we've come into the light, then we're also going to see our sin. It's in the light. It's in the context of God's light that we can see where we have strayed and where we need to acknowledge where we have done something against God. So fellowship is restored through confession. But how does this happen? See, fellowship is restored through confession. That's like coming to the eye doctor's office. But if I just come to the doctor's office and I don't leave with a prescription... And what good did it do me? I, I might have, you know, that sin might have been exposed. 
Um, the, the eye doctor uh, could have looked and seen the infection. The eye doctor could have uh, have all the um, instruments and tools at his disposal to, 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 to give me a prescription. But if I leave the office without a prescription, then I, I, I'm going to still have the infection. And so what John turns to next is to show us the prescription. He wants to show us if you are a believer and you are straying from the truth, if you're not walking in the light, if you have uh, backslidden or if you have maybe just uh, are experiencing a temptation that you just can't overcome, you're, you don't have the power in and of yourself to, to, to push beyond a certain temptation or a weakness in your life and you're struggling with something. Maybe you're struggling with something mentally in your mind. There's something going over in your mind that is destructive. It's a destructive thought. Or, or maybe there's a habit. There's something you're doing that is destructive. It is sinful. And you're continuing to do it. And you say, I am a Christian. I have fellowship with Christ. Well, the reality is that maybe your fellowship, maybe your relationship with God is suffering because of the sinful acts or the sinful thoughts or the things in your life that you're doing that are not pleasing to God. And again, it's not that God has left you. It's not that uh, Jesus has abandoned you. It's that you have put yourself in the, in the sin bin, the penalty box. You've strayed. There's a thought that needs to be held captive. There's a there's a behavior that needs to be ended. There's something in your life that is breaking the fellowship between you and the Father, you and Jesus, and perhaps even you and other brothers and sisters. Fellowship is hindered because of that sin. And if you don't leave here with a prescription, then I'm certain that that you and, and myself, all of us as believers, we have the tendency to continue down that path of sinful behavior. If we're not checked, if we, if we don't come into the light and get that prescription, then we're going to keep going into the darkness. But again, we have more good news. Good news was that fellowship is restored through confession, but even more good news is that fellowship is established in Christ. Jesus is the prescription. See, Jesus is not only our saving grace, he is also our sanctifying grace. That, that the same Jesus that we confessed our sins to at the beginning is the same Jesus that we continue to confess our sins to because we trust him. We trust that he has saved us, that he is the one who has the, the ability to write us the good prescription. So look at verses 10 and into chapter 2 again. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But then John says in chapter 2, my little children. And, and, and you see in that the love that John has for the people. But it also introduces a concept of a familial relationship. 
that John is, is saying, my little children, he's, 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 this is a term of endearment, a term of love that he's saying to the people, the, the believers, these are Christians that need to confess their sins. And he's saying to them, look, my little children, my family, the ones that I love, the ones that I have fellowship with, the ones that, that make my joy complete because I see that you're, you're walking with the Lord. My children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. He's not saying that you won't sin or that you don't sin. He's saying you probably will sin. But he's saying I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, here's the prescription. Here's the good news. Here's what you get by following Jesus and by walking in the light and being a part of this fellowship and pursuing your happiness in the church and in Christ and in the family of God rather than by worldly sinful behaviors. I am writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, when I think of my eye doctor, I think, well, I can see his qualifications on the wall, his diplomas, his degrees. I know that he's qualified. I know that my eye doctor is smarter than me. I know that my eye doctor knows my eye better than I do. And I know that my, doc my eye doctor is the only one able to write me a prescription. And with Jesus, we look at Jesus and we see that it's not just my eye that he knows. <laughs> it's, it's not just my physical ailments that he's aware of. When I look to Jesus, I'm saying, I'm coming into the light. I want, I want you to shine your light into my life because I want that, those sins to be exposed so that they can be eradicated. And, and what John is saying here is that we have an advocate with the Father. Now, this is a little tricky. Because that word advocate is, is kind of like legal counsel. It, it does kind of remind us of the courtroom, but then he says we have an advocate with the Father. It's not that we're approaching a judge to earn, you know, to, to, to hope that the judge will look favorably on me to, to save me. It's that I am a child of God. He is my Father, and my elder brother, Jesus, is offering himself as an advocate. Have you, as a brother or sister, ever had this happen where you know you, you saw your, your sibling getting in trouble with your parents, but then you came along and because you knew the truth, you said to your father or you said to your mother, no, it wasn't him. You know, here's what happened. That, that's, that's the idea. It's not a judicial uh, relationship necessarily, even though we're using the term advocate. It's, it's almost like Jesus is our brother, our, our sibling, coming to our father and saying, no, I, um, I want to advocate on behalf of my brother or sister. So, of course, we needed that judicial forgiveness. We needed that, uh, that salvation that was earned and purchased through the blood of Jesus. But what we're seeing here is more of a familial uh, relationship, a familial forgiveness that happens in the family of God. That God is our father, we are children. Jesus is our elder brother and he is advocating for us. Just as he advocated for us in our salvation by laying down his life and shedding his blood, he's also
also that same blood and that same sacrifice and that same uh, willingness to give of himself, that same act on the cross is also necessary for me as a follower of Jesus, as a believer, as a child of God. I needed it for my salvation, but I need Jesus also in my life with him. And so Jesus Christ is the advocate. And again, I can look at Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, the righteous one. What is his diploma on the wall? What are his qualifications? Why is it that I'm approaching Jesus and not some other world religion? Why is it that, that Jesus is the one that is qualified to do anything on my behalf? The reason why Jesus is the office in which I'm entering, to, again, to go back and forth on my metaphors here, the one, he's the one I'm coming to and approaching because he is the only one qualified. And so Jesus is the righteous one. It's his righteousness. It's his perfection. It's, his, it's the fact that he never had an infection. He never had a sin condition. He never had a, a, a time where he disobeyed the Father. And so he, as the righteous one, is the one who advocates on my behalf. Now, I love this because Jesus is our advocate. Um, he's our legal counsel. He's setting the record straight on our behalf. Um, but John, since we're studying 1 John, I, he's the only one who uses this term as a noun for Jesus, but he also is the only one who uses this term that we translate here advocate, but other places it's translated counselor. He's the only one who uses it in relation to the Holy Spirit. And we find in John chapter 14, verse 16, that Jesus says, and this is important, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. In, in this context, it's translated counselor. There's no kind of judicial or, uh, you know, it's more... Uh, it can be translated in this way as a counselor. He, he will give you another counselor, indicating that there are two. That Jesus himself is our counselor or advocate or, or defense. But, but the Holy Spirit is also our counselor. And that he will be with us forever. And then in John 15, 26, John, uh, well, Jesus says, when the counselor comes, and this is, this is really important for First John. It says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And so whereas the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ, and that's why we know Christ in the first place, is because the Holy Spirit was an advocate. It was the Holy Spirit who told us and testified about Jesus. He uh, reached into our soul and into our spirit, and he testified of Jesus to us. And so he's testifying about Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit does. But, but Christ pleads our cause against our accuser and to the Father. So the Holy Spirit is an advocate. The Holy Spirit is a counselor who testifies of Jesus. Jesus is another counselor or another advocate who testifies of us. If, if I deny Jesus before men, he'll deny me before the Father. But if I confess Jesus 
before other men. He will confess me before the Father. In other words, Jesus, his role as an advocate is to testify that I am his. Praise God. Jesus Christ is the one that we need. It's necessary for us to grow in our fellowship and in our communion with him. But it's interesting because Jesus, even in our sins as believers, it's not that Jesus is saying, like the example I gave where a brother or a sister comes before the, with the mom or dad and says, no, it wasn't him. You know, that's, that's one way of advocating. You know, the other sister or the other brother, they knew the truth, and so they're coming and they're, they're making sure that the mom and dad knows. No, don't worry. You, know, you don't need to punish him because it wasn't him or this is what actually happened or whatever. That's one way of advocating. But in Jesus' case, he's not saying that we didn't do it. See, we did do it. We did do it. Whatever it is that you're struggling through, whatever sin, sinful thought, or behavior that you've been living in, you did do it. And that's why verse 9 is so important that we should confess that. Come into the light. Just expose it. Get rid of it. But Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is not advocating and saying, oh, you know, Father, just, just overlook this. Or, or lying to God and saying, no, it, it wasn't Nathan. He, he didn't actually do anything. No, you did sin. And that sin breaks the fellowship between the Father, just as never saying I'm sorry can break the fellowship between family members. Never confessing within a family or within a church can, can lead to, uh, to, to hostility and, and a breakdown of fellowship. But what Jesus is doing in this case is he knows that there is an accuser. Now, John isn't going to get to Satan in this text. And so I'm going a little bit beyond 1 John 1 to, to make this case. But, but the reality is that when Jesus pleads our cause to the Father, he's doing it against the accuser. And, and sometimes that accuser is just me, but, but really we know from Revelation 12.10, that Satan is accusing the brothers and sisters day and night. This, uh, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come, because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. So ultimately, Satan will be finally and ultimately defeated. But until then, he is accusing us, and sometimes we listen to his lies, and we forget that Jesus is our advocate. And, and the, the antidote, the prescription that we need, that John is saying, is he is saying, look, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. And if you do sin today, if you do sin tomorrow, I want you to know that yes, there's an accuser out there, and John's going to get to that later on. Yes, there's an accuser out there, but I want you to remember that there is an advocate, that you have an advocate with the Father. That's, he's not just sitting there excusing you or, or writing or, or burying your sins under the rug. No, he's bringing them into the light so that they can be addressed and so that you and I can, can, can have victory over sin. But then finally, I love what he, what he does here. Is it, It's not just that he's our advocate. 
That's not the only part of the prescription. Of course we need to trust Jesus as our advocate. We need him. We need to, to come to him. But he is also our atoning sacrifice. So look again at verse 2. It says, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, some translations use the word propitiation. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So this idea that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice or propitiation is the idea that God is angry against sin. And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, God hates that sin. He hates that sinful thought. He hates that sinful deed. He hates what you're doing. He knows that it's destroying you, and he knows that it's destroying the fellowship that he wants to have with you. So, of course, we need Jesus' blood to, to, to be shed to cleanse us from our sins so that we might be saved. But we also need Jesus' atoning sacrifice to continue to purify us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as it said back in verse 9. So he is our atoning sacrifice. So I love this because not only is Jesus our legal counsel, he's our advocate, he's our counselor, he's the one who's offering uh, you know, himself, but, but he's actually the one who brings the penalty or the, the, the payment for the penalty of our sins. And this is what we need to remember as believers that when we sin, God doesn't want us to sin. He has offered his son Jesus to pay for our sin. And he has given us his son Jesus so that we might walk with him and avoid sin. This is our prescription. And if you leave today without the prescription, then you're going to be powerless to overcome those sinful thoughts and those sinful behaviors in your life, even as a Christian. We need Jesus. We need his atoning sacrifice. See, because God is wrathful and angry against all sin, whether it's committed by someone who is saved by grace or whether it's committed by someone who is far from God. He hates sin. It separates us um, from fellowship with him. It doesn't separate us from salvation if we're Christians. But it does separate us from having that fellowship and that communion with God that, that he wants us to have. So uh, the, the final word here in verse 2 is that not that Jesus supplies a propitiation. Not that Jesus supplies, you know, in, in societies, ancient societies, people just had the innate sense that they were supposed to offer, you know, the, the firstborn son or the or the virgin daughter or the uh, or the crops or you know, they were supposed to offer something to the to the gods in order to appease the gods they had something in them that that understood that there was wrath and that they needed to appease him but but what they could not have understood is that God himself yes there's wrath against sin but God himself offered himself as the wrath remover that he is the propitiation. He doesn't just offer a propitiation. He is the sacrificial uh, atonement. It says in Colossians 1, 22, 
that now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. And in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, it says, For this is the kind of high priest we need. This is, this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's what's on his diploma. That's what Jesus, that's his qualifications. That's the kind of priest we need. Verse 27, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. So Jesus Christ is the righteous one, it says in verses 1 and 2. Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice in verse 2. And he is our advocate. And that is the three-part prescription. That Jesus is perfect and holy and righteous. That Jesus has laid down his life for you. He shed his blood for those sins that you're committing. And he offers himself as an advocate. Counselor. The, the one who, who kind of comes alongside you as a part of the family. And he guides you into the truth. So I end by asking this question. Um, and I want you to be honest with yourself. Pretend you're at the doctor's office. You don't really know what's separating you from God. Why, why you don't experience the joy or the fellowship. But I, I just want to ask you a few questions. And the first question, maybe is the most important, is are you in fellowship with God? I'm not asking you if you're saved. Now, if you're not saved, then I offer you, you know, the same prescription that you need to turn to Jesus, the righteous one who offered his life for your sins and gave himself up for you and, and becomes your advocate. And so trust in him. Trust in him completely. Turn away from the worldly things uh, that, you, that you have in your past and, and trust in his good plan for your life. But I'm not asking you necessarily, those of you who are Christians here, I, I'm not asking you if you're saved. I'm asking you, are you in fellowship with God? Or is there something in your life right now that is hindering your communion and your joy in the Lord? Is there something that's, that's standing in the way? See, John 1, 1 John 1, has offered us a lot of tests. And again, when I went to the eye doctor, I was given a lot of tests. There was something you puff in your eye. There's you know, all the things that they do. And 1 John chapter 1 gives us a lot of tests or evidence of our fellowship with God if we are in fact walking in the light. One test is if we would have fellowship with one another. Do you have true uh, fellowship with the body of Christ, with the family of Jesus? Um, have you been washed by the blood of Christ? Have you been forgiven? Do you regularly confess your sins before God? 
Or have you dried up so much that you just don't even care to approach him with your sins? And are you trusting that if we sin, we have Jesus Christ as an advocate and sacrifice for our sins? I just want to remind you, if you're saved, you have an advocate with the Father. He is the righteous one. He loves you. He wants you to come into the light. He wants you to abandon the works of the flesh and trust in him. But one final warning that I want to give to you if you're not a Christian is if you are not saved, then you don't have an advocate. You don't have an advocate before the Father. And so you're standing toe-to-toe with the judge of the universe. And if you're trying to do this on your own self-righteousness, then you're going to fail. And I want to encourage you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, that you would trust in Jesus as the only mediator that you need between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus, and that you would trust in him as your atoning sacrifice who paid the penalty for your sins. And if you are a believer, then I want to encourage you not to walk out that door today without wrestling with God and and crying out to God and asking him, uh, asking Jesus to advocate for you, to help you to walk into the light and to give you the prescription that you need to overcome the works of darkness that, that will continue to come up in our lives as Christians.